Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. My sense of what happened is that they were looking all over the place for different types of kids and somebody got it in their heads they wanted a farm kid. And so they went out and started looking around for kids who would talk to the camera and they didn't find any. And they kept going until they found one who did. There's magic in this. I mean, it's just so powerful. I guess with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, I don't know. I can't summarize what the lesson is, but just be be conscious of some of these stories, perhaps. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 65, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. No one can deny the impact that reality television has had on our world, not the least of which happens to be us doc filmmakers. Really, ever since shows like The Real World and Survivor became massive hits and really ushered in a whole era of reality TV, documentaries have increasingly become not only accepted by the mainstream, but they're often now some of the most talked about films or series. Interestingly, very appropriately for today's episode, when I looked up reality television programs, the first one that's listed in Wikipedia was the Up series. Of the seven-year-old. For anyone who's not familiar with this landmark of television documentary, the Up series was produced by Granada Television in the UK. It began in 1964 with its first installment, which was simply called Seven Up. It would follow the lives of 14 British children from different social classes. Each new film would update us on the progress of these kids and then as they became adults. And again, this would happen every seven years. There have now been eight films to date, the last one being 56. I'd first watched the series back in the early 2000s, and then again just over four years ago when Steph was pregnant with our boy. Not unlike what one might do with Netflix or Hulu with a series, once you start watching, it's hard not to binge. They're just such fascinating character and historical studies that once you've watched them all, you immediately want to go back and and start trying to figure out the math on when the next film's going to be coming out. I bring up this series for a couple of reasons. One, if you have not seen it, you must seek them out as soon as possible. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Get them now. This series is like Documentary 101. And I suppose another way, it might be looked at now as Reality TV 101, but that's that's surely another different type of discussion. But there is so much to appreciate in watching the Up series, both as a consumer as well as a maker of documentary. 
The second reason that I bring this series up is because later on in our program, we'll have the chance to speak with one of the subjects, dare I say stars, of the Up series, William Nicholas Hitchin, or simply Nick, as he's referred to in the show. In what will be a first for the documentary life, and possibly anywhere else, we will be looking at documentary from the perspective of someone who is on the other side of the camera. Documentary from the perspective of the subject, if you will. But before we do that, in the spirit of a doc series like Up, which is shot in true verite style, I'd like to talk a little bit about how we documentary shooters, how we can best approach shooting verite. So after the break, I'm going to give you five ways in which to do just that. Thank you again for joining me today for episode 65 of The Documentary Life. Okay, let's get right into our five ways to shoot verite. And by the way, what I'm about to tell you, it comes from experience shooting both documentary film as well as reality TV, which will make it even more appropriate for today's program. Okay, number one, have a plan. When you're shooting verite, there can often be a lot of things happening at once, or sometimes, of course, nothing happening at all. So while you really need to plan for both, for this discussion, I'm more referring to the former. By nature, Verite kind of assumes that you'll be following action, and it will most likely be done handheld. In Verite, there isn't really a lot of time for setups or even tripods and lights. The whole purpose of Verite is to shoot the truth, right? Shoot as authentically as possible. Now, it's not observational in that the subject is unaware of a camera. Quite the contrary. In Verite, oftentimes the subject is more than aware of a camera and may be entirely affected in their actions because of it. However, that doesn't mean elaborate lighting schemes or a dolly camera setup or any of these types of things will be happening. Verite is pretty bare bones and certainly pretty run and gun by nature. And so because of this, one wants to do as much research about their subjects and locations as possible. You want to be able to try and familiarize yourself as much as you can with these sorts of things so, so that you can be ready for anything when cameras start rolling. For the most part, you're just not going to have time to stop action so that you can you know, get into a better position to shoot or so that you can look up a list of questions to ask while you're following action. So again, do as much research as you can before you start rolling cameras. And speaking of rolling, number two on our list, roll on everything. That's right, everything. I'm not kidding here. Verite shooting ratios can tend to be astronomical and with good reason. You're following action and recording conversations and events as they are unfolding. And because of this, you don't want to risk missing anything important. It may be the one and only opportunity to get a particular soundbite or shot of your subject doing something special. Unless you're shooting film, which 99% of us are not, drive space is relatively inexpensive. So just keep rolling on as much as feels comfortable. Yes, it's going to be a pain in the butt in the edit room, you know, sifting through 100 plus hours of footage. But what problem would you rather have as a filmmaker? Not enough footage or too much footage? Look, having more footage, it just increases your chances of harvesting the gold. So definitely keep rolling, Doc Lifer. 
Number three, be ready to go. Because of the oftentimes run and gun nature of shooting verite, the worst thing that can happen to you as a shooter is either one, not rolling, which we've just addressed, or two, missing a moment because you simply weren't ready. You might have still been putting your camera together. You might have run out of juice, scrambling to find another battery, or you might have been trying to wire someone's lob. The point here is that there are steps that you can take that will give you the best chance at being there and rolling when a moment happens that you don't want to miss. Let's look at a few things that you can do. You need to have your camera built for one. You need to have a camera built at all times. Unlike a standard commercial shoot, you won't be breaking down camera gear between locations. You'll most likely keep your camera built for the entire day. And you should have everything set up so that it's easily accessible. Unless you have a sound person and someone else assisting you, you may be doing the one-man crew thing, right? And even if you aren't, if you're shooting Verite, I'd argue that you should still approach your day as if you are on a one-man crew. You should have extra camera bats, extra media cards, a few lenses, maybe a nutrition bar and some water. Have what you need on your person so that you don't have to go find anything in the middle of a shoot. You want to be able to seamlessly go between lenses, cards, or batteries without, without substantial downtime and without interrupting any action. The last thing I'll recommend about being ready to go is that before you start your day, you'll want to have your camera on a shoulder mount or at least a monopod that you can run around with without having to constantly remove it. I'm not a fan of the monopod, but, but some people do really like it. I find them a bit clunky, and, and, and I like my hands on the camera at all times. But it is a matter of taste, I suppose. Um, and one thing I'll note, and this will probably go along with, with my next suggestion, you don't have to have a shoulder mount or monopod. It's just something that's recommended. The idea is, if you are using it, I should have said, if you're going to be using a shoulder mount or a monopod, have it set up and ready to go with your camera. It's, it's a part of your camera setup, so have it all intact. Remember, it's verite, so you want to be ready and following action at all times. Again, do everything you can to be prepared for whatever may take place during the day. Be ready to go. Number four, anticipate conversations. A lot of the time you'll be shooting interactions between your main subject or subjects and other people. So moving with the flow, trying to naturally follow action and conversations, it's going to be a pretty important part of your shooting. It could in fact end up being 75% or even higher of what and how you'll be shooting. So you're going to not only need a steady hand, but you're going to need to be able to follow conversations as unobtrusively as possible. And I've got a couple suggestions for doing so. I already mentioned a shoulder mount. If you do have one that you'll be using with your camera, that's going to help take some weight off of your camera setup, certainly. But if not balanced properly, it can also create more weight in the front or back end. And then you'll be fighting that all day, which of course you don't want to be doing. So make sure if you're using a shoulder mount that you've got it properly balanced before you start. Now, as I kind of alluded to earlier, don't assume that if you're shooting Verite that you have to be, you know, have to be using a shoulder mount. Yes, it may help quite a bit, but there are some ways in which you can simply shoot handheld and still get a pretty effective smooth pan between people having a conversation. Some camera bodies, they're better than others for this. The idea here is to, to hold the camera tight to your own body, at times nearly cradling the camera as you pan back and forth between your subjects. 
This works great when people are seated, but but maybe not as great if they're standing, especially if they're pretty tall. Then you'll you'll constantly, you know, it'll get this angle as if you're tilting up all the time to catch their faces. And that's going to give a very particular um, aesthetic or feel to your shot. So you do want to be aware of that. So when you're following conversations, what you want to avoid is moving your camera too quickly between people. This can be very jarring for the viewer, and they end up feeling anxious and, and trying to catch what people are saying, just as you, the shooter, clearly are. So what's critical here is that you must become a good listener when you're shooting conversations. If you can follow what's being said, you'll give yourself a better chance at anticipating replies or certain reactions. And when you're not always able to get to that other person talking immediately, that's okay too. Remember, whatever you do, don't just simply quickly swing over to them, unless you have a very specific reason or cause to do so. Just kind of casually pan over to that person when you feel it makes sense. Keep in mind, sometimes hanging on a person who's not talking, it can be just as effective because, because you're getting their reaction to what's being said. But above all else here, the simplest thing to keep in mind is to listen, listen, listen. If you can become part of the conversation, your natural shooter's intuition, it will take over and you'll get some great shots. Now, the last tip that I'll give you for shooting Verite will also help when you're shooting conversations, and it'll also help you to get a greater amount of action in your frame in focus. And that's to shoot with a deeper depth of field. The most obvious way to do this is to shoot with a wider angle lens. My go-to, and, and I've heard a lot of a lot of you see, more seasoned doc lifers like to do the same, is to use the 17 to 55 adjustable lens when I'm going to be shooting Verite. This gives me some some decent focal range, and it also allows me to go wide when I need to get more in my frame and I'm having a little trouble getting all that I want in focus. And remember. The more you stop down, that is the smaller your aperture, the deeper your depth of field. So you do always have that in your bag of tricks as well if you're, if you're struggling to keep things in focus. But do keep in mind, the more you stop down, the less light on your subjects. So you may need to get some direct light on them, at least on their faces, or you may need to increase your, your ISOs. And of course, the more you do this, the more risk of a grainier shot you have. However, if you're outdoors in broad daylight, you'll have no issues with this at all. So those are five ways to shoot Verite. I hope that gives you some helpful tips when you're going to be shooting a lot of, a lot of handheld and or Verite type stuff on your dock projects. Now, if you'd like to see what I've just gone over, if you'd like to see these written out, you can find them in the show notes for this episode, which can always be found on our website, thedocumentarylife.com. Now, one final thing that I'd like to mention is that I've written a blog post as a supplement to go along with this particular episode. In the article, which is entitled Documentary Filmmakers and Films of Verite, I list out pioneers of the documentary Verite style, including filmmakers like Robert Flaherty, Ziga Veritov, and the Males' brothers. And what's really cool is that I was also able to find some of their most famous films, and I've posted them in the article as well. You can actually watch these films for free in their entirety from our site. So I'd highly recommend checking this article out by going to our website at thedocumentarylife.com and clicking through to our blog. All right, next up, we're going to try a little something different this week for our Doc Industry Guest segment. 
as we talk to someone who is not behind the camera, but instead they are in front of the camera on a documentary. You can't imagine how excited I was to talk with someone from one of my favorite documentaries of all time, the Up series. My conversation with Nick Hitchin up next on The Documentary Life. So you've got a great idea for a documentary film. Awesome. I'd love to hear about it, but I don't have a ton of time. Can you tell me about it in 30 seconds or less? Oh, you don't quite have your pitch down yet. Okay, that's fine. What's your website where I can find more information? Maybe a press kit I can take a look at. You don't have one. Well, have you thought about how you might raise some funds to help with the costs of making films? They can be expensive, right? You haven't. Okay, maybe just tell me about your audience. Who's going to want to see your film? Who will you be marketing it to? You don't know this either. Okay, then I'm going to assume you haven't thought about how you'll be getting your film out into the world then, right? I think I see what's going on here. I was once in your shoes. A great idea for a doc. Camera in one hand, a boom mic in the other. But other than that, not much other than a whole lot of excitement and gumption. And that's great. You'll need all of that. But you'll also need a heck of a lot more if you're looking to make the kind of documentary film that you can be proud of. The kind that people will want to see and will impact them. The kind that won't break the bank while you're making it. And dare I say, you might even make some money from. You need support, and we've got you covered. We built the Documentary Academy with you in mind. We've got all the resources you need to make a successful documentary film you can be proud of. Come and enroll at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy, and let's turn that doc idea into a reality. wanted a glimpse of England in the year 2000. The shop steward and the executive of the year 2000 are now seven years old. Give me a child until he is seven and I will give you the man. Let's get to know these children. I am joined here on The Documentary Life by renowned nuclear physicist and professor of University of Wisconsin at Madison, William Nicholas Hitchin, who also happens to be a part of one of the truly landmark documentary series of all time, the British-produced Up! series. Welcome to the show, um, first of all. Now, I I know you from your name, of course, in the Up! series, which is Nick. However, loads of material that I've come across has you listed by your full name, William Nicholas Hitchin. How are you referred to here in the States? Is it different at the university than, say, it was on, on the show? No, I'm, I answer to anything. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm Nick. My father called me Bill. Anything you like. Okay. How do your students refer to you? <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> lots of ways. <laughs> it depends whether I'm in the A-shot, doesn't it? Yeah, um, certainly. I don't know. I mean, if if they don't know me very well, they probably say professor. But once they get, if they've dealt with me, they ah, mostly they don't care. They're engineers. They they don't stand on ceremony. <laughs> right. The reason why I've had you on the show today, Nick, is is because I wanted to try something something different from what we've done here on the show, and it's actually something I haven't really seen done before. 
As I explained to you before we started recording, this podcast, which is for documentary filmmakers or those aspiring to be doc filmmakers, and so doc filmmaking and the doc lifestyle of a doc filmmaker is not only generally our topics of discussion, but it also really dictates the type of guests that we have on the program, who invariably consists of you know doc industry people, directors, producers, writers, editors. Who we never have had on the program is someone who is in front of the documentary camera, right? In front of in front of the camera, sure. a subject whom a documentary is about, and and I actually I don't think that I've really seen this sort of thing done, a discussion about doc film and, and filmmaking, but from the perspective of the subject, which is what I'd like to do with you today. So thank you again for 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 joining us, Nick. I, I absolutely appreciate that. You're welcome. With that in mind, um, and for my younger, certainly for my younger doc filmmaking audience who may be unfamiliar with this landmark series, God forbid. I'm shocked. God forbid that they would be. Why why don't we hear from your perspective what the Up series is all about? Oh, gosh. Well, nobody knows what it's about. Mm, Indeed. But um, when, let's see, in the early 60s, best I understand it, Some British filmmakers, mostly, I guess, at the Granada Television Company, which is based in Manchester, got it in their heads that they would look at a cross-section of English kids and see how fully formed those kids seem to be. Mm. And what they always point to is supposedly a Jesuit saying that says, give me the boy until he is seven and I will give you the man. And so they were going to go and look at a cross-section of English society and see how fully formed the little seven-year-olds were. So Mm. they went out and tried to get what they felt was a cross-section. And of course, when we were seven, we were cute as buttons. You know, and what they did was ask a lot of, in a certain sense, adult questions. I mean, they asked the sorts of things that adults want to talk about, but they asked those questions to seven-year-olds. And to seven-year-olds, those questions were odd. And so the answers that came back were, you know, not what you, they were quirky. What do you think about girlfriends at your age? I've got one, but I don't think much of her. No, but I said that when boys go around with girls, they don't pay attention to what they're doing. Do you have a girlfriend? <laughs> I don't want to answer that. I don't answer those kind of questions. Anyway, so they did that, and then apparently seven years later, <laughs> um, the guy who was the head of... Granada went up to, I believe in this instance, it was this man, Michael Apted, in the Granada cafeteria and said, when are you going to go back and interview those kids again? (laughs) Michael said, oh, well, okay. And then they started doing it every seven years. That's what it's about. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) Nick, tell us about what you were doing at the time when you're aged seven, where you were living, and how really you were first approached with doing the Up series. Or really, I guess at that point it wasn't a series, right? How were you first approached with doing 7-Up? Yeah, I didn't realize actually for a long time that it perhaps wasn't originally going to be a series. I'm not even sure to this day, but I always assumed that it was a series Mm, but mm, mm, maybe it wasn't but um, again all of these you know 
it's funny because I've told all these stories a lot of times. Yes. <laughs> so who knows what really happened and how much he's reconstructed memory. <laughs> it's but, a, lot, um, a lot of urban legend, I think, has gotten in there, hasn't it? There you go. But um, what I remember about it, I mean, I was living on a tiny little farm in the Yorkshire Dales. I always tell people in America, if this isn't a documentary, but if they saw the TV show All Creatures Great and Small, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's set exactly where that comes. That was set. Yeah. So my sense of what happened is that they were looking all over the place for different types of kids and somebody got it in their heads they wanted a farm kid and so they went out and started looking around for kids who would talk to the camera and they didn't find any <laughs> and they kept going until they found one who did from the yorkshire dales nicholas he goes to a one-room village school four miles away from his home i'm quite a lot of fun when i find I always like to wait till someone... You better watch out for me, because as soon as you're not looking, I like to dash up and put my hands in front and, and hit them against your back. So were they roaming the Yorkshire countryside until they happened upon you? They were roaming the Yorkshire countryside. There's a, a You must be familiar with the Monty Python. There's a Monty Python sketch that I sometimes bring up to the 7-Up people, much to their dismay, where the Monty Python people have got a crew out there yeah. who are going up to homeless people on the streets and saying, please, please let us make a documentary about your pathetic little life. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it was, it was that sort of a moment, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, so so they eventually found a kid who would talk to the camera and said strange enough things to capture their imagination. Yeah, yeah, right. Can you remember how you were, or how they may have approached your your um, how they may have approached your parents in terms of well, the, sort of permission, or can we spend a couple of weeks with you? In fact, how long did they spend with you initially, and and how okay. did they approach your your parents with with actually being a part of the project? I have no idea how they approached my parents. They approached my school they showed up at my little one room schoolhouse mm. and they filmed different kids okay. and that's all i they asked us some strange little questions and that's all i remember oh wow wow now the experience of being filmed yeah. has all i mean if you're asking about that has always been one of the most surreal experiences of my life because <laughs> i always say that it's basically it's seven days out of every seven years. Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. that's an exaggeration. It doesn't actually take them seven days, maybe four on wow, average. Okay, right. But they show up, they take over your life, they whisk you around, they have you walk up a hill multiple times. It's always walk up a hill <laughs> with me. Well, you know, you know where you're from. I think it's a, they're just hoping to hearken back to that. It's your character now, right? <laughs> sure. But then they get to Madison and we walk up a hill in Madison. And apparently, you know, the first five times you didn't do it right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you probably know all about that. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, to be kind of almost a movie star but yes. certainly an incredible focus of attention they ask you these questions about things you generally haven't thought about how do i feel about such and such mm. you know and they're filming all this stuff and it's very very intense and very personal and very personally disconcerting yes. because they're asking you to expose 
your secrets and the secrets of everybody you know. I mean, the more embarrassing, the better they like it. <laughs> Seems I mean, like that know. might be the case with Michael Apted. <laughs> oh, I would never, never cast nasturtiums at Michael. But <laughs> I mean, I think it just is the nature of the beast yeah, that, that they, 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 the guys I'm working with, to be honest, they're not first and foremost really documentarians mm. they're first and foremost television people that's true absolutely right, right. and that's probably different mm -hmm. i mean michael wants to make good television and he's yes. very talented um but he's making television that's right so if i really embarrass myself there's a good chance it'll be up it'll be used <laughs> um well you know what I'm, I'm gonna stop you there for a minute nick because you bring up a good point and uh, and by the way it seems like perhaps somebody like michael literally was at the forefront of what would become reality tv oh absolutely absolutely right and and we and, invented it yeah, for sure and i say, notice i say we yeah right right well you can i think you can at this point <laughs> i think you are certainly I'm aware going of that with it. yeah um knowing that they're in your life for four days five days six days every seven years going through the process of being filmed how is that affecting your life in those four and five days knowing that you're in front of the camera what's changing because of course they want this idea of reality but anybody who has ever been a documentary filmmaker anybody who's ever worked in tv um anybody certainly who's worked in reality tv knows that it's it's not even ever generally close to 100 percent reality they totally take over yeah i mean they're not they're not filming me doing my normal life. They, they said they might, well, they might come to a class and film me giving a lecture. <laughs> For some B-roll. But, <laughs> but basically what they do is they, I mean, the, when I first came to America, Michael said, hmm, what do they have in America that the English will want to see that's different? How about uh, we go and film in a shopping mall? Right. That was 28 up, wasn't it? Yeah, do you go to shopping malls? It's like, well, sure. I mean, I don't, I'm not much of a shopper, but yeah, I've been to shopping malls. I mean, they don't, they don't feel, I mean, they occasionally create a situation that's supposed to look like right. what I normally do, but right. they don't follow me around in my normal routine. What they do is they move me around and plonk me down somewhere and say, okay, act normal, walk up that hill. And then they interview me. So they're, they're not... No, I mean, we're not talking, um, you know, uh, Attenborough watching the, uh, the Dung Beetles <laughs> or something. I mean, right. they, 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 the whole, all the pieces are posed where they, you know, where they want them to be. I mean, right. Michael will occasionally say, do, you do do this, right? I mean, he's, he's not, <laughs> he wants to capture what you do, but he's not taking extraordinary pains to be a documentarian. I mean, mm -hmm. he wants to capture who you are, but he's not, you know, it's way too boring and yep. way too time-consuming. Right. I'm sorry to say that. Yep. To, to actually follow you around doing what you do, he shows up, he basically doesn't, in, I mean, he's basically doing an interview. Yes. He wants a lot out of words, and then the other stuff is backdrop for the words, I guess. Right. Right. Uh, you bring up some interesting points, Nick, because it, it is, you know, even as I introed the show, you know, I referenced it as a landmark documentary series. And it's always kind of considered in some form or another, some words or another, it's it's something of something like that. Right. And and it's interesting to use in this case, certainly with your explanation, um, it's interesting to use the word documentary in some ways, because 
a lot of a lot of my listeners, including myself, tend to be. I don't want to say a little bit more purist, but well, the purist was the word that was inevitably going to come up, wasn't it? It yeah. is. It is. And, and as documentary filmmakers, I think unlike the experience certainly that you're describing, a lot of us as doc filmmakers are spending you know infinite amounts of time you know loads of time with our subjects and that's a big part of not only the documentary process but it's it's sort of maybe our responsibility as doc filmmakers and our interest which is to get it sort of right as much as we can well that raises lots of other issues too doesn't it because Mm. i mean on the one you know as a physicist (laughs) when you measure something you are very concerned with how much you change it by doing the measurement absolutely and you know what i just to finish a previous thought because yes. it's just chasing around the back of my head when they film me for seven days they have a distinct tendency to say okay we're done you know so, and drop me on the curb and i'm left lit- literally drop me on the curb and i'm left literally looking around thinking what on earth just happened just happened and you, wow and then you go back to just you know and you walk back to your place of work and get on with it and it's a very bizarre experience but i mean if you say that you spend, a, I mean, I can understand that you're trying to be careful and get it just right, but the more time you spend with your subject, mm. the more you're interfering with them. Mm. And so in that sense, the less realistic. I mean, I always think ah. that when when Jane Goodall watched those chimps all this time and then she eventually reported that they were acted in crazy ways i'm thinking of course well, they did. so would anybody who had this woman <laughs> staring at them for 25 years yeah, yeah. Mean, it's 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 a very interesting thought i mean we talk about it a lot here on the program this idea of no matter what because your your mere presence affects any sort of situation and so depending on what sort sort of type of story or type of documentary you're trying to tell um, you may want to, as much as you possibly can, um, minimize your impact. A, a lot of the work that I tend to do, Nick, um, a lot of my documentary work has been overseas in developing countries. And and you couldn't possibly be more obtrusive than when you're walking up in the Himalayas and, 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 and you come upon a hill town of 200 people and you've got this massive gear with you and you start filming there. There could not be anything probably more obtrusive or intrusive than that. And so we often talk about that, the impact that we have as a doc filmmaker, um, not only on people's lives and the subject's lives, but certainly ultimately to the film. And, and what is our responsibility to try, try to, to film in such a fashion that, again, that we minimize the impact? Well, as I say, as a physicist and also as somebody who's right. living my own version of the documentary life, mm. I'm acutely conscious of, of that too. What are some of the misconceptions that have happened when people view, when people view your films? Well, lots of things like that have happened, lots and lots. Um, Michael, after he said, you know, let's go do film in a shopping mall, he took me and put me outside, um, I think it was J.C. Penney's, no (laughs) offense to them, in our local mall. And he had me standing in front of a rack of, you know, teenage girls, sort of fluorescent. Hot Topic-esque type store, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's like, you know... Nobody who knows me thinks that I like to shop. 
you know, I mean, I, it's a perennial problem. It's hard, you know, it's hard to get me into a, a store, <laughs> except possibly a grocery store. I'm not exactly a fashion plate. But Michael puts me in front of this thing, and then he, he does a voiceover. And if there's one thing that I have learnt to fear in this, it's Michael Michael's doing voiceover. <laughs> and so the voiceover that comes on is, Nick came to America for a salary of $30,000. <laughs> and there's me in front of these girls' clothes. So, you know, Michael is always telling a story yeah. and he believes the story, but he's telling the story that's in his head. <laughs> and okay, I mean, I didn't really get it that this was very negative, but when I read the English newspapers, yeah. I got it. Oh yeah. <laughs> and next time I went back to England and I'm chatting to people who I have loved for years, they're saying, after a little while, multiple people did a double take and said, mm. wow, you aren't as bad as we thought. We wow. thought, you know, so right. that was enormously hurtful. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's kind of. But he, he, you know, the but, thing is here, Nick, and, and, and I pause here because where does your responsibility lie as the subject? Because you at this point, I th and correct me if I'm wrong here, I think this was around 28 up. You've spent time with Michael. You've spent time with the crew. You see the films. You know how people can be portrayed. And d d is there a moment where you felt, did you, were you, are you empowered? Maybe the question is this. Are you empowered during these times of filming once every seven years? Are you empowered to say, hey, look, this is so um, entirely inaccurate and I'm afraid of how you could use this. Don't don't put me in front of a mall. I don't shop. That's not my thing at all. Oh, you can't no, portray no, me that. No. How I mean, does Michael that go? is not being he doesn't think in his own mind yeah. like all the rest of us. He yeah. thinks he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he basically I think is a good guy. Right. He didn't if he had known that he was gonna hurt me desperately, yeah. he would not have done it. Right. And if I say to him, Michael, please don't use that thing I just said, yeah. he generally won't. Okay, That's okay. Not... No, no. So, I mean, he won't... if I say, no, this thing you're asking me to do is not something I would ever do, he will say, okay, then, well, we're not doing it. He doesn't want to do things. He wants to represent us. I mean, he... The biggest thing, there's two things that he does that can be distorting. One is he leaves things out. Sure. Even out of, you know, obviously he does, but by leaving things out, there's a distortion. Mm. And the other thing is he summarizes his impressions, and I think he's trying to do it fairly, but he's trying to make it interesting. Yeah. There's always, it's got to be good TV, but, but in, he gives you, he sums things up in voiceovers, and those are very impactful. But no, he's, he's I mean, if I say to him, I thought, you, see, you started talking about responsibility. I mean, the one place where I take responsibilities, I try very hard not to talk about other people. Mm, 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 yeah, Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I hate it when people get on TV and they talk about other people mm. and, you know, and, and judge other people who have no comeback, who are just out there in the audience hearing right. themselves. Right. And... In this thing, especially when the, you start out with a six-year-old, there are lots of other people who are vulnerable to what they say, and oh, that's man. always been my 
huge concern. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I try very hard to take responsibility. Don't, mm. You know, I kind of instinctively don't really believe that anybody's watching the film anyway. So I do. <laughs> Turning to the audience of the documentary life, which is predominantly made up of first and second time doc filmmakers, what can you tell us now, Nick, having been a subject for you know fifties, you know almost sixty years at this point? Yeah. Um, what can you tell us about you know what sort of suggestions might you have for us? in regards to working with our subjects, whether it's spending time with our subjects or how we might conduct interviews. What do you think is something that might be helpful for us to know that we might not know having not been in front of the camera? Wow. Well, you know, that's the most, <laughs> that's the most original question that I've been asked for quite a while around this. I can only ruminate a little bit okay i mean michael will tell people that he thinks that when he films us it's just like having a little friendly chat in front of the fireplace and it's like how can he possibly think that <laughs> because you know first of all that's not how he does that he asks people very cutting questions but secondly yes. when you're filming somebody and putting it out there it's not. I mean, that's, you know, th this is the strain, the very, very strange nature of what I experience is that actually what I experience, apart from having the sound guy pushing something up your sweater and, <laughs> and George, the cameraman, doing strange stuff to you, and then they back off and then, then they start talking. But setting all that aside, yeah, your experience at one level is... A little chat and okay you're being asked these very personal questions yeah. and the, but there's a strange duality between it being a personal little chat with the few people in the room yeah. and the fact it's really nothing like that mm. and it's going to be magnified and amplified enormously so there's a you know it just that's a real disconnect that I have trouble getting my head around at all times. Maybe that would be different, Nick, if it was a situation where if someone was truly spending months at a time with you and filming you, you might be able to perhaps um, forget that the camera's around you a little bit more, certainly, and it might be a well, more honest a representation. Way, I... Would that help or not? <sighs> Well, it would drive me bonkers. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, but it's not... The issue that I'm talking about isn't forgetting the cameras, because in some sense, I, I do actually tend to forget the camera rather quickly. Yeah. It's that I forget the cameras too much, I suppose. Mm. What I mean, I think the biggest thing that's, that I have experienced that you... that people might want to keep in mind is just how very very much the person making the film is telling the story in their head and i know this is not going to be new to you because this is what you struggle with all the time mm. you're trying to be as objective as you can mm. but whatever you do you are i mean if you spend months with the person mm. you may get a you will get a better sense of their story but you're still going to edit it down to two hours or something absolutely point, there's still a story that we're always keeping in mind 
Exactly. You're telling a story that you have in your head. Michael is trying to tell an accurate story. And, you know, I was asked a question once, does he capture my life? And I try, and what I said is, it's not exactly my life, but it's somebody's life. I mean, what he captures is a reflection on the human condition. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it's not spot on for me because he can't measure everything. Right. And his voiceovers just reflect his best attempt to summarize what's going on. Um, but yeah, ultimately you're telling a story and, you know, you could have a website where every little bit of your footage was stored and you invite, I mean, I actually wondered about trying to do a project myself where you invite people to, you see, okay, this is a little bit off the subject, but one of the things that is astonishing about the up series is that it's like time-lapse photography yeah, you get and and prior to that i don't think it had happened that human lives were seen through time-lapse photography right right and it's a perspective on human beings where if you watch a if you see human beings 7 14 21 and you see how they change if you if you saw that thousands of times you would develop an intuition for oh a child who's like this at 7 really is likely you know most children who are like this at 7 this and this and this is going to lead to that and yeah. that and that yeah 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 and that would be and so i was thinking wow wouldn't it be amazing to have people you know do their own little compilations of themselves oh. and load them up somewhere and you know like um one of my favorite artists is that yorkshireman whose name is going to come to me um day is it david hockney and he takes lots of he did this astonishingly brilliant thing where he took lots of small photographs and pinned them to a board to make one large image and, and it, okay well completely off the subject never no, mind it's, it's quite, I, I love hockney's work I mean, you could do you could have bazillions of little um individual seven ups and you put them all together and if you if you if people could watch bazillions of these yeah. it would they get an intuition okay so but what were we talking well about? you know what though it's interesting that you say <laughs> because one might argue that in some ways with technology and with the internet and with selfies and with social media it's happening on a daily basis and um with a lot of people well i mean if you want to talk about distorting lenses oh yeah we've just gone down the rabbit hole there oh yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and i would argue that the series that you were part of part of the success and the beauty of it is i don't think it nowadays it's not the sort of thing that you could do nowadays and, and, and the reason being because of the internet, because of social media, because you can actually, you know, the subjects of a, a, a new up series, right? It wouldn't, I would, it wouldn't, I would almost say it wouldn't work or certainly wouldn't be the same because the fact of the matter is probably half, if not the majority of those subjects, you might be able to find out what they're doing almost on a daily basis, if not even on an hourly basis. And so, <laughs> right. And yeah. so the beauty of this is you guys, this happened at kind of the most perfect time that it could happen and i don't think it could be replicated again you may or may not be able to i mean what i would say is that in so, like so many things if you're the first and you know some things certain things don't get invented until it's their moment mm, and that's right when it's and this this was done at the moment when you could first do it and it was the first time and if you do it the second time it's like yeah yeah 
But I mean, what makes it more interesting than something on social media is that there's film going back to 1963, and that's partly the time capsule effect. But you're right, Michael just... Um, well, he wanted to... I mean, ultimately, it was about making good TV. That's right. That's right. And then that's certainly something I've, I've really learned even, you know, in this conversation. How, you know, how often are they in contact with you? And when do they like, when will you know if there's a next one? When do they let you know that, hey, we're going to come start filming? <laughs> I'll know when I know. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of maybe every couple of years. Yeah. If they do get around to deciding they're going to do it and everybody is able and willing and they get a budget, then Claire, I would, Claire would get tasked with setting up a schedule. Yeah. And then they'll start. She'll start calling around, and that will that could be anything from weeks to six months ahead of when they do the interviews, okay. depending on whether you're the first or last person they interview. Right, right. Okay. I mean, it probably doesn't take six months, but it might because they're doing other things at the same time. Because sure. I mean, what's in really, in a certain sense, the most interesting aspect of this film is the careers of the filmmakers. I mean, Michael has gone on to great things. Mm. And every the cameraman and the sound guy and everybody else has gone on to be leaders in their field. Yeah, right. So they're all being called back from whatever big things they're doing to this project that they were doing when they this, were young men and women. Yeah, this passion project that they keep coming back to. Yeah. Although in Michael's case, it is one of the... And in all their cases, it's one of the crown jewels of their careers. Nick, this has been a, a tremendous conversation. I am so happy to have had you on the program. This is, uh, it's, it's amazing that you, I was able to find you and that you responded. So thank you so much for that. Well, you're welcome. As I always say to people, edit kindly. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> you, you of all people know how that can go. There you go. Any parting words for, for any of my doc filmmaking audience when they're working with their subjects that you can think of? Well, I can tell you a few things, but yeah. I mean, when we were all seven, they took us to London Zoo and they put us outside the lion house <laughs> or something and they kept us there until we were all crying pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I was crying, but I remember being unhappy. I mean, you know, it, so try and get that shot the first time uh, don't don't i mean especially if you're dealing with children it's not it re, i mean and you can see it when if the person is d doing this thing for the fifth time their body language looks more and more unnatural so i mean it sounds stupid but that's not my favorite thing in my case the biggest thing that i feel bad about is anything where I'm being asked to discuss my family and my relatives. Yes. Not fair as far as I'm concerned. Mm. I have a story about, I guess I can say this because they used it. At 21, Bruce Balden, who is the nicest man in the world, yeah. he came up to me and said, I'm really worried that they're going to ask me and I'm truncating this a bit, that they're going to ask me about sex. <laughs> and I said, well, Bruce, you just have to, you just have to be brave. Because they are going to ask you. <laughs> well, 
you know, and so I went up to the researcher at the time, and you can tell how stupid I was. Oh, no. And I said, I said, Margaret, whatever you do, don't ask Bruce about sex. Oh, <laughs> I, mean, I almost don't need to tell you the rest of it, Such do I? Such a no-no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a little bit later, Bruce comes back to me and he says, now, hang on, what must the order have been? The order was that Margaret came back to me and said, we asked Bruce about sex. It was wonderful. <laughs> And then a, then a bit later, I saw Bruce, they asked me about sex. It was terrible. <laughs> and actually, it was pretty damn good. Bruce comported yeah. himself very well. Oh, yeah, he really yeah. He was great. But, I mean... <laughs> but, I mean, uh, you what, understand, what? you know, we, we can't keep away from, certainly with, you know, a doc <laughs> filmmaker when we're immersing ourselves in our subjects and, and our subject matters, uh, such a infinite part of of our connection for an audience connection with their subject is understanding what is the emotional context that we can connect to and that's that's right. real life matters so you kind of have sure. to ask those questions is there so what would your suggestion be then well i don't have one I mean, I th I <laughs> you just wish you're... they wouldn't ask you <laughs> no it's not quite that but it's Obviously, you have to be extremely conscious yeah. that you're treading a fine line between being interesting mm. and riding roughshod over a person's feelings. Uh, I mean, let me give you another example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are lots. OK, I mean, one of the other guys in the film was from Liverpool. He wasn't not Neil, who was this delightful seven year old, but his friend, I think he's called. Paul, Paul or something. Yeah. Um, Paul, no, I think maybe it was Peter. It was Peter, I think. That's it, Peter. Yeah. And I mean, so at 21, Peter was on there with his wife. And I mean, this story may give you a few different issues. Yeah. So they ask, one of the things that they do is they stick a microphone under somebody's nose and they say, tell me why you chose your spouse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, that is really dirty pool. <laughs> Shooting dirty pool. It really, it really is mean. And one of the reasons it's so very mean is because this is shown in England and America. Yeah. And the culture around the way you talk about things yeah. is so incredibly different. So culturally different. Yeah. I mean, in England, if you say my wife is wonderful, you're bragging, and it's really bad. In America, if you say, well, you know, she was all right, then you, you know, that's that's horrible as well. It because is, you yeah, aren't you've able said to some, say anything positive negative. about your spouse. Yeah. So this very sweet young English woman responded like a good English woman. Yeah. She said, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, the, he's... He's okay. But, you know, she was doing what the English are expected to do. But even to English ears, yeah. it sounded like, couldn't you have said something a bit more positive about him? <laughs> right. I mean, so there are certain sorts of questions that you may think are fine, but boy, you've got to think hard what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, Well, Nick, are, are you suggesting that certainly with some of the more personal questions that we ask, be conscious not only of the person, the subject that we're speaking with, but the type of audience that this might be presented to? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Now I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was my point. Is just the story. It is, and I it's know. like the point of Seven Up. There isn't a single point. The point is look. Yeah. Just look. Just observe. Right. I mean, to a documentarian, that must be the point. The point. And my point is the point of Seven Up is just look and draw your own conclusions. Yeah. yeah. And my point of this story is the story. Look at it and draw your own conclusions. Mm. You ask a young English woman to comment on why she chose her husband, it doesn't end well. They weren't together after seven years. I don't know if that was the reason, but <laughs> but it just felt like there was a connection. Um, yeah, it could be very hurtful. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's an effect in someone's personal lives that we need to be aware of. There are huge effects, yeah. and you do, they're not always anticipated. No. I mean, Michael asked me a question once. He's asked me many times about my little brother who is deaf. Mm, and right. one point I talked about that and said, you know, if I, I used to wish that he wasn't deaf, but then I realized that wishing he wasn't deaf was wishing him away. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I got a letter from a woman and I showed it to Michael. I mean, it brought me to tears. Ugh. She had a child with a handicap, and she found this. She apparently found this tremendously helpful. Oh, so there's just oh yeah 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 yeah. There's magic in this. Mm. I mean, it's just so powerful. I guess I guess with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, I don't know. I mean, just. Just think, I, mean, I, I don't know what, I can't summarize what the lesson is, but um, j just be be conscious of some of these stories, perhaps. Nick, I can't thank you enough. It's been wonderful having you on the program, and you have given me so much to edit with. I hope I... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you, you scoundrel, you. <laughs> all seriousness, I, I hope I do it justice. and um... I hope you do too. Yes. Gosh, all right. It was fun talking to you. <laughs> it's been a delight. Thank you so much. I look forward to not only the next installment in the Up series, but perhaps having a conversation later on. Okay, cool. Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it, and you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.